16-year-old Jimmy goes to his father and says, You know, Dad, now that I'm 16, I think it's time that we start talking about a car for me to drive. His dad thought about it for a second. He says, Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. We'll talk about this car idea when you bring home a good report card and you get your hair cut. So armed with that challenge, Jimmy goes back to school and several months later he returns to his dad and he says, uh, here you go, dad, straight A's. His dad goes, wow, that's pretty impressive, straight A's. He goes, but I noticed you haven't got your hair cut. He said, well, you know, when I was in school, I was taking a religion class. He said, and I couldn't help but notice that Jesus had long hair. So did the apostles, so did the kings of Israel. It's almost like everybody we studied had long hair. He goes, I want to be just like them. His dad goes, that's great. He goes, but uh, have you noticed what else they all had in common, Jimmy? He goes, no, Dad, what was that? They all walked everywhere they went. <laughs> you know, I like that. Kind of like, we've got to be careful about these comparisons. You know, while it may not always be wise to compare ourselves to others, there are times, however, when such comparisons are actually commanded and encouraged. For example, last week I touched on the fact that there are many folks that I've come in contact with who are confused about the term born-again Christian. I was reading an article in the Orange County Register this past week and it illustrates this truth. There's a gentleman who was at the Orange County Fair. Some of us may remember him as the Galloping Gourmet, uh, Graham Kerr. And it had this in this article about his life. It said uh, about he and his wife. It says, adapting ingredients aren't the only changes Care has made in his career. The Galloping Gourmet series ended when an automobile accident left Graham temporarily paralyzed and his wife Trina, the show's producer, suffering from long-term complications. And after a bout with depression, Trina became a born-again Christian and soon after, Graham did the same. You know, I can't help but notice that it didn't say that she became a Christian or he became a Christian. They specified that they became born-again Christians. And again, it illustrates the ignorance in our culture today as to the reality that one cannot become a Christian unless one is born again. And in John chapter 3, we'll notice that in Jesus' response to Nicodemus who came to him at night and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life or what do I got to do to get into heaven? And Jesus said to him, you must be born again. The term born again has to do with regeneration. And it's the definition of regeneration to be born again. What Jesus said, it's not an option but a necessity for entering the kingdom of God and is a real spiritual birth that he compared to physical birth. Just as you and I enter into a relationship with an earthly parent or parents through physical birth, Jesus clearly explained to him that one cannot enter into a relationship with God unless one goes through a spiritual birth that Jesus says to be born again. Regeneration, to be born again. Several times it's used throughout Scripture. The word is used in the English Bible in Matthew 19, 28, and also Titus 3, 5, talking about regeneration. The words born again are used in John 3, 3 and 7, and also again in 1 Peter chapter 2. In John 1, we read these words, But as many as received Him, in verse 12, speaking of Jesus Christ, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. In verse 13 it says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 he goes on and explains again the idea of being born again. And he talks about the fact, he says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass grass withers and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which has been preached to you. The point is, when a person is truly born again, as the Bible describes, there are certain results or evidences that can be seen in that person's life. Today I want to ask you the most important question that you can be asked, and that is this. Are you, specifically, personal, are you born again? Since entrance into heaven demands a yes answer to this question, the next question would be this one. If you say yes... What evidence is there in your life that what you're saying is accurate? Think how important this question is. If Jesus said, you cannot and I cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless we are born again from God above, a spiritual birth that takes place, that enters into a relationship with God to where we're called children of God, to those who believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. If the Bible says that we cannot enter into heaven unless we're born again... This has got to be the most important question that any individual person can ask of themselves. And that is this, am I born again? If entrance to heaven demands it, then I want to know the answer. And what evidence is there in my life that would indicate that what I hope to be true of myself is actually correct? I want us to compare ourselves to a man who the Bible clearly identifies as a man who is truly born again. His name is Saul from the city of Tarsus. We began to look at his life the last time we were together, but the Bible is very clear that Saul of Tarsus is a man who was born again of God. He confidently would go on to say this, that absent from his body one day, he'd be present with the Lord. He had no doubt about his relationship to God. Because he said the day that he died, he said, I've got all confidence in the Word based on the Word of God. That when I'm absent from this body, I'll be present with the Lord. In fact, he told the church at Philippi, the Philippians, he said this, you know, I'm torn. You know, there's part of me that, you know, wants to stay here for your sake. But the other part of me says, I can't wait to get to heaven because I know when I die, that's where I'm going. He was a man the Bible describes as being truly born again. And there's evidence that takes place in a person's life who has come to a relationship with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to identify those characteristics, those features in our life, so we can then look at them objectively. The Bible says, you know what, to examine yourself, to make sure that what you believe about yourself is what God says to be true. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at this account in its entirety. And we're going to take a look at some characteristics or features of a life that is truly a life that is born again. In Acts chapter 9, we'll begin with verse 1 and we read these words. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. And he took food, and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. It says, And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. You know, if you recall from our last time together, one of the first evidences or features of a life of one who is transformed, one who is born again, the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new, that there is an evidence or evidences that we will look at of one who has truly entered into a relationship with God. And the Bible says to enter into that relationship, we first have to come to faith in the Savior in Jesus Christ. We saw this in great detail, that in order to come to a relationship with God, the Bible says, for as many as received Him, we just saw in John 1, 12, to them, those who receive Christ, to them, God gives the specific privilege of becoming children of God, to those who believe in His name. And there's always a pattern that develops in coming to faith in Christ. First, there's contact that comes by God through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You know, if you look at the life of Saul, you'll notice that here is a man who read the Scriptures. He read the prophecies about who the Savior of the world would be and the things that He would do. And yet He was blinded to this truth by His own misunderstanding of what He thought God should do. There was contact in not only the Spirit of God using the Word of God as as He studied the Scriptures, but there was also contact with an individual and his name was Stephen. And Stephen was a man who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and that faith was so real and so deeply entrenched in his life that when he was told to deny that he had a relationship with God through Christ, he said, I can't do that. 
And he went through and explained through the Scriptures the history of the nation of Israel and how God had promised a Savior who would come into the world who was Christ the Lord. And he had put his faith and trust in Him and the Bible says that because of this faith in Him that he was put to death. And yet God sowed that seed in his heart because as he saw Stephen die and he saw him die with tremendous confidence and assurance, he was dying as one who knew that one day absent from the body that he would be present with the Lord. And as he, stood, as he laid there and looked up into heaven, he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father welcoming him into his presence. Man, that left a mark, an impression on Saul's life. How could one believe such foolishness and yet take it to his grave? So confident on one hand and I'm thinking he's so foolish on the other. There was contact and there was conviction and the conviction was as Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul knew and recognized and understood because here was his problem. He had told everybody that Jesus was dead. And if Jesus is dead, then how are they having this conversation? And he was convicted of his sin and his sin was telling people that Jesus was not God's chosen one, that Jesus was not the Savior of the world, and his sin was leading people away from Jesus instead of leading them toward Him where they would come to faith in Christ. He was convicted of his sin and the Holy Spirit of God using the testimony of Stephen, using the testimony of the Word of God, using the Word of God in his heart, bringing him to conviction where he went, wow, you know what, I am, I'm guilty before God. Everything I thought about myself is just my whole world's turned upside down. He was convicted of sin. And as we're convicted of sin, conversion takes place in that we recognize that we're going the wrong, the wrong direction. And the Bible says that repentance is turning and doing a 180 degree. We're running from God and now we turn and we respond to God. And we throw ourselves upon His mercy. And we accept what God says about Jesus, that God so loved the world, He gave us His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We come to an agreement that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place. He rose again three days later from the dead, demonstrating the ultimate sign that He is the Savior of the world. Saul saw Him face to face and realized that Jesus was no longer dead, as he had been telling people, but He was risen. And that conversion led to consecration, which was, Here I am, Lord. My life is now yours. You've bought me with a price. What do you want me to do for you? And we'll talk more about that. The communion that he had was just that quiet time alone with God. A second thing that we're going to look at, uh, or an evidence, not only does one first have to come to a point in our life where we've come to recognize the truth of the claims of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, historically you've got to ask yourself the question, when did I come to the point where I believed that I was a sinner as God said I am, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and none are righteous, no, not one. I've offended a holy and righteous God, therefore I need to ask His forgiveness. When did I come to the point where I've recognized that that was true in my life, I repented of sin or turned from sin and turned to God and threw myself upon His mercy, believing that Jesus died for me and rose again from the dead three days later. When did I do that? Because that's genuine faith in Jesus Christ. It concerns me when I speak to people and it's so nebulous in our lives. Well, you know, I was a kid or I went to a camp or I did this or whatever it was. Or, you know, I think it was then. It's like, you know, I, I want to just challenge you to consider what the Bible has to say very carefully because there's no more important question for each of us to ask of ourselves than this one. And that is, that, am I born again? Because entrance to the kingdom of God demands a yes. When did you come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? When did you believe He died for you? When did you believe that He rose from the dead for you? 
as we will see, the evidence is overwhelming. Of the, of, the, of the sinner who turns to faith in Christ, the evidence becomes overwhelming. The second thing that we see, not only did he come to faith in Christ, but he also, there was a, 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 there was a fervency in prayer. If you'll look with me at verses 10 through 12, there is something that stands out as we look at this particular passage in Acts chapter 9. In verses 10 through 12, we read these words. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, Lord, here I am. And so as as Saul, in darkness in those three days, neither eating nor drinking, as Saul was dealing with that in his life, God was at work in another man's life, in another man's heart, his name is Ananias. He was a servant of the Lord. Acts 22.12 describes him as devout and well-spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He was likely one of the spiritual leaders in Damascus, which ironically would make him a target of Saul who was coming to drag those who had come to faith in Christ back to Jerusalem to try them on grounds of blasphemy. Think about it. So this guy is a target of Saul. God comes to Ananias and says to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. That footnote, behold, he is praying, tells us everything that we need to know about what Saul was doing during those three days. Three days he can't see. Three days he won't eat. Three days he has nothing to drink. Three days, man, the Bible says that he is praying. It tells us what we need to know about what he was going through in his life. But it also helps me to understand something about one who has truly been born again, and that is this. From a subjective standpoint, I'll share with you, before I came to faith in Christ, my prayer life basically was a wish list, my demands, or my negotiations with God. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And if you don't want to do that, then how about this second plan? I'll do this, you do that. Kind of negotiating. Wish list, demand list. As if somehow or another, God existed for my service. The one who truly comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is born again realizes that God doesn't exist to serve us, but we exist to serve Him. Our prayer life becomes one of, God, what is it that you want to do through my life? What is it that you want to reveal through my circumstances? What is your plan and where are we going from here? I will guarantee you that Saul of Tarsus was not in his blindness and in his days of fasting telling God what he would be doing in his life. After seeing the glory of Jesus Christ and the resurrected Savior, there is no way that he's not humbled to the point of saying, What is it, Lord? that you want to do through me. I'm here to serve you. You're God, I'm not. One who is truly born again understands that that prayer life is reflective of a heart that's been made right before God. For those born again, prayer is seeking God's will and His plan and how we can serve Him. See, Saul was no longer praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, upon Christians. But he was praying to the Father for God to reveal His will to him. See, prayer is as natural for a Christian as breathing. While Saul was selfish, 
Paul sought God's will and became a man of unceasing, fervent prayer. James tells us the effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, and the reason for it is very simple, because the righteous man is seeking God's will in his life. God, what is it that you'll have me do? That's why much can be accomplished. It's not, God, what are you going to do for me, or this is what I want you to do for me. Hey, what is it that I am here to do for you? 1 Corinthians 6 says that we've been bought with the very precious blood of Christ. Therefore, we're saved from sin in order to serve the Savior. We owe Him our life. We owe Him our eternity for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and truly been born again. There isn't a day that doesn't go by that I haven't spent the majority of the day talking to and listening to God. And I'm not talking about assuming the prayer position because in my days of negotiation there was a ritual involved. It was like you had to get down in a certain position and then you can tell God anything you want Him to do for you. You know, but now it's like talk to Him all the time. Not verbally, audibly. But Lord, as I'm driving to a customer's office, you know, may I gain favor in your sight. May this man's heart, this woman's heart be open to our conversation. You know, what, what is it that you'll have us do? Should we do this work? Shouldn't we do this work? Should we do this project? Shouldn't we do it? Uh, do we have the manpower to do it? Can we keep our, our commitments that we make? Will we, will we maintain our integrity through the process? Lord, we don't want to do anything that would jeopardize our testimony to the world. That's a continual conversation, ongoing. And you know it and I know it. In our relationships and our families, with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers, we're always talking to God. Those who are truly born again. There's a fervency in prayer. That's why the Apostle Paul said that we are to pray without ceasing. The one who is not born again thinks, okay, God, I gave you my five minutes of prayer time. Now what are you going to do for me? I gave you my one hour of church time. Now what are you going to do for me? I gave you my offering in the basket or I did my good deed for the week. What are you going to do for me now? That's not one born again. See, he was fervent in prayer. He was seeking the will of God. God, what is it that you want me to do? I've been so wrong in my life. What do I know about anything? Teach me. Show me. Instruct me. Open and teachable. One who is truly born again is fervent in prayer. But I want to tell you something about Ananias. Ananias is a little concerned about this vision that he had from God to go see Saul. Because if you'll notice what he says, it's like, hey Lord, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if you notice this or not, but... That guy's bad news. He's come to kill us. I mean, are you sure that you know what you're doing? Which leads us to a third feature or evidence of one who was born again. And that is faithfulness and service to God. Faithfulness and service to Him. Notice in verses 13 through 17. It says, but Ananias answered, he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon his name. Notice what he says. But, but God, are you really sure that this is... Am I, you know, it's kind of like, am I reading you right? Am I hearing this right? Are you really sure that you know what you're doing? Who hasn't been there in our times of talking with God? Are you sure you want me to do that? Are you sure you want me to go there? Are you sure you want me to say that? That's what we're talking about in, in being uh, open and available to the Lord's leading in our life. It's like, Lord, man, I mean, this person's going to think I'm nuts. Are you sure? that? They, are you sure? We've all been there. God, are you sure? But you'll notice something about God. He's always sure. He, he is. He's never like, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> Can you imagine how scary that would be? 
holy cow, are you sure that this rotation of the planets and the orbit and the solar system, is everything okay today? Are you sure that this is all working out right? Oh man, good thing you pointed out that star and that galaxy because I missed that one. Ooh, it could have been a mess. <laughs> Praise God he doesn't need our help. You know what I mean? He's sure about everything. Notice what he says. But, and that's a strong contrast to what he was, what Ananias was saying. He said, but. says, the Lord said to him, go for he is what? He's a chosen instrument of mine. I have chosen him to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight. Isn't it great? Saying as always, God knows what he's doing. He had a purpose, he had a plan. And his plan was that Saul would become a faithful servant of his. Do you realize that God, who chooses us to enter into relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ, wants to use us as instruments of service to Him? By grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast. He says that we have been chosen as His instruments to do the good work that He has already prepared to do through us, before the very foundation of the world. An evidence of one who is truly born again is a person who is committed to serving Jesus Christ. Saul will be a faithful servant, as we will see throughout our study in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul will become one of the greatest servants of God. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. How are we serving God in our life? those who claim to be born again. Before I came to faith in Christ, my life consisted of serving myself. Maybe serving my wife, my children, those immediately around me. But I certainly wasn't sensitive to serving God. He was there to serve me. That was why He existed. And now, through faith in Jesus Christ, being truly born again from God. He says, Chuck, you are my servant. And you'll notice that as we read through Scripture, every person that's come to a genuine understanding of Christ and through faith in Him has the same attitude. And it's always, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Do whatever you want through me. Because I recognize who you are. You're God. I'm not. I'm here to serve you. Being born again demands service to Christ. We're saved, as I mentioned, to serve. You know what's interesting about this article about the galloping gourmet? Is that after it indicates that they had both come to faith in Jesus Christ, it says they worked for a decade in South America, helping the impoverished build small farms. They co-founded Creative Lifestyle International, an organization that teaches people how to live better with less money. They were motivated to service. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we all got to go to South America, or gotta go, we all got to go on mission field, or we all got to go and do this, that, or the other thing. But what I am saying is this, that as God led the galloping gourmet and his wife into service for him in South America, 
as God will lead Saul, the Apostle Paul, into service for him throughout the world, so God must use you or me who claim to be born again into faithful service for Him. What are you doing? How is this true of your life? We say we come to faith in Christ, and yet there's no fervency of prayer. There's no seeking God's will. There's no trying to understand His desire for our life. We say we come to faith in Christ, we say we're born again, but there's no evidence of faithfulness in our service to Him. We've got to ask ourselves some very difficult questions because eternity hangs in the balance. Another feature is that He would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that is drastically different than having received the Holy Spirit, being baptized by the Holy Spirit because the filling of the Holy Spirit, you'll notice that it talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit was already work, at work in the life of Saul. He was already convicted of his sin. He was already convicted of ongoing sin. The wonderful thing of a person who is truly born again, and this is a beautiful contrast or a struggle that we all go through, those who have come to genuine faith in Christ, and that's this. We can no longer do the things that we used to do without it bothering us now. We can no longer say the things that we used to say. We can no longer go with the people that we used to go with and do and say the things that we used to do without being troubled in our heart. If we've truly been born again, the Spirit of God says, you aren't like that anymore. You can't go there anymore. You can't say that anymore. You can't do that anymore. You're a child of God. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. That's not going on anymore. Genuine faith in Christ, being born again, isn't just turning from sin and turning to God. It's turning from sin, turning to God, and walking in a new way of living. If we love God, Jesus said, we'll obey His commandments. That we'll walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That we'll live a life that is reflective of what God says should be true of the life of the Christian. One who is born again. Galatians 5, Ephesians 4. We're no longer to do the things that we used to do. We're to walk in newness of life. And God identifies what that newness is. And we see that in the life of Saul. He was convicted of sin. He was convinced of the Lordship of Jesus Christ that He had risen from the dead. He is who He claims to be, the Savior of the world. He was converted because of the Spirit of God, the washing, regeneration. He was born again from God, from above. Titus 3.5 Also now He was controlled by the Spirit of God and that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To be controlled by Him. Think of this contrast that took place in this man's life. He transformed them. He took His natural strengths and refined them. He was a gifted natural leader with a strong willpower. He, was, he had strong convictions. He was a self-starter. He was a motivator. He was bold. He was a master of his time and his talents. He was a motivated individual. He was a profound thinker. And God took all of that and just changed it for His service, for His glory. He was also a man who was filled with hatred. And that hatred was replaced with love. He was restless and aggressive. He was filled with peace. He was hard-nosed in his treatment of people and he was filled with gentleness. He was a proud man who was now humble. 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Man, this guy's life exemplified that. The Encyclopedia Britannica, secular uh, writers say, they describe Saul of Tarsus before his conversion as an intolerant, bitter, persecuting, religious bigot, proud and temperamental. 
But after his conversion, he's pictured as patient and kind and enduring and self-sacrificing. What integrated Paul's life, however, and lifted this almost neurotic temperament out of obscurity into enduring influence was a profound and revolutionary religious experience, they say. Only the Spirit of God can so thoroughly sanctify a life for God's service. There has got to be tangible, observable evidence in the life of one who claims to be a Christian. One of the most incredible features that come with one who has been truly born again is that we will now have fellowship with believers. Think about that. I mean, the impact of this is incredible. I mean, let that soak in for a second. When he was filled with the Spirit, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales in verse 18. He regained his sight. He arose. He was baptized. This man publicly identified himself with the people that he sought out to kill. The Jesus freaks. I have seen what you've been trying to tell me. I have seen Jesus Christ. I have received Him as my Lord and Savior. He has transformed my life. I have been born again. I am now like you. And I want the world to know that not only has that occurred in my heart, but I'm going to identify myself publicly with you whom I've just been trying to persecute and kill. If that is not a huge public statement as to what has happened in this man's heart, nothing is. I don't know about you, but I can make the same claim. The last people in the world that I ever thought I'd hang around were Jesus freaks. You know, can't you be a Christian like this kind of Christian? I I, I was this kind of Christian. I believed in God, went to church every now and then, negotiated my deals with God. I was that kind of Christian, wasn't threatening to anybody. It was just a kind of thing between me and God. And, you know, it worked out really good that way. But now you've got these people who are like, their life has changed and they're running around telling everybody about it. And now I'm one of them. What in the world happened to me? To have fellowship with believers. I mean, just a statement. He hung out with the... He wanted to kill them. Now they're best friends. Now who can do that? Only God. Only God can do that. Look around at the people that some of us are hanging around with now. Who would have ever thought? Can you imagine? Fellowship with believers. That is the most incredible thing. A 180 degree turn. I hate you. I want to kill you. To hey, let's have dinner together. (laughs) What in the world? I want to pray for you. How can I help you? What? That's some life change there. I mean, that's incredible. Wow. Show me your friends and that will tell me a lot about you. There's nothing wrong with being involved with non-Christians. We have a purpose in their life. A strategic purpose. But I want to make a statement here and I want you to think about it before you start throwing stuff at me. And that is this. A professing Christian who prefers the company of unbelievers is probably still one of them. 
Because if you're not uncomfortable with what your non-Christian friends are doing, what your non-Christian friends are saying, where your non-Christian friends are going, and there's no conviction of that in your life, then it's a good chance you're one of them and not one of God's. That doesn't mean we write off non-Christian friends. Hey, you know what? We want to love them. We want to reach them. We want to share with them exactly what God has done in our life through faith in Christ, that we are not the same people that we used to be. And that, you know, we want to, we want to have that kind of impact. But man, there, there are ways to do that that are still pleasing to God. There are places that that can take place without compromising our faith in Jesus Christ and our testimony before them. We can invite them to dinner. We can go to dinner with them. We can play golf with them. We can do other hobbies and sports with them. There are a whole bunch of different ways that we can be involved in their life without throwing our testimony out the window to say, hey, I just want to try to reach people for Jesus. Well, how are you going to do that when you're doing the same thing they're doing that's not pleasing to God? While you're out drinking with them, while you're out smoking with them, we're out doing dope with them, when you're out having sex with them, and you're saying, I want to try to reach them for Jesus? By compromising everything you know to be right? What do you think that they're thinking? Oh, you must not be one of them born-again Christians because what you believe doesn't infect your life. It doesn't impact anything. This is great. We can hang out forever. I had a friend who played on the Rams who had a couple of roommates that used to come to our house for Bible study. And he was all shook up and nervous about it. He's like, oh man, these guys are going to Bible study. They're going to be coming home, start preaching at me, telling me about Jesus, you know, start opening their Bibles. They're going to start, you know, getting on me about the things that we're doing. He said, man, whoo, man, I was so glad. They'd come home from Bible study. They'd stop, pick up a case of beer. We'd call the women over and we'd have a great time. It was great. It didn't bother me at all. So I said, hey, I don't care if you go to Bible study. It doesn't affect our relationship. Until a friend who was living a Christ-like life who was truly born again, when that man was struggling in his life and he went to him and shared the claims of Christ with him and he saw the difference between a man who genuinely knew Christ and one who claimed to, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And he went to his roommates and said, you know, you guys hindered me in coming to faith in Christ because there was no life change there's nothing evident in your heart. And so why would I be attracted to what you were doing? Because we were all doing the same thing together. We cannot win people for Jesus by living like the people in the world. We're to take a stand. We're not to compromise. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we'll know what the will of God is. And all we got to do is be obedient to God's leading in our life. We don't have to go out of our way to try to be weird people. Telling the truth instead of lying when you're in a jam. Working hard instead of stealing from your company or, or your boss or your whatever. Not telling dirty jokes and not using filthy language. In the construction industry, I can have a conversation with people without dropping 15 F-bombs on them and they just kind of go, how do you do that? That's incredible. We've never heard you swear. Well, good thing they can't hear me think. <laughs> but you've got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But the reality of it is, is wow, you know what? There's something different about you. You have peace. There's something different about you. Is there something different about you? Because I'll guarantee you, there's something different about Saul of Tarsus 
after he was born again. Another feature is fluency in speaking. And the fluency in speaking is found in, in verses 20 through 21. And what this means very simply is this, those transformed, born again by the saving grace of God. Notice this. And immediately in verse 20, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God. Proclaiming to others that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Proclaiming to others that Jesus Christ is God's way, His only way. Not all roads lead to heaven. Not all belief systems are going to get you. There's only one way. You must be born again. You must believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, His death and His resurrection on your behalf. There is no other way. Enter by the narrow gate for the road to destruction is broad. There's only one way to get to heaven. And that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through faith in Him and in Him alone. And Paul began to proclaim that everywhere that he went. He was going into the synagogues, grabbing these people out and arresting them for telling people that Jesus is the Savior of the world. When he was born again, he went into the synagogues and stood beside the people he went to arrest and said, hey, what they've been telling you is right. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And these people were perplexed. They were a little bit confused by what was going on. Everybody was confused. Believers were confused that the guy who came to kill him was now standing next to him proclaiming Jesus. The Jews were confused because the guy who went to kill Christians was now one of them instead of what he came to do. Everybody was confused. The world was turned upside down. And so was Paul Saul's thinking. Because what he had thought was there's no way that a man could be crucified because to them hanging on a tree was a curse of God. That he got what he deserved by God. How can anyone who died on a cross be the savior of the world? And he was going around telling people that because Jesus died on the cross, he couldn't be the savior. And yet as he began to read through the scripture, he began to prove through the very words of God that that was exactly God's plan. Psalm 22, that he would hang from a cross even before anybody understood what crucifixion was. That he would be pierced for our iniquities. That he would be scourged or whipped for our sins and our transgressions. He began to understand the words of God because the Spirit of God now lived within him could explain to him the mind of God. He understood God's plan. Before that, he said, man, you know what? Nobody had hung on a tree that got crucified. He was a murderer. I mean, he was hung with murderers and thieves. And he, I mean, this guy was guilty. It would be like someone telling you today that, hey, the guy they just put in the gas chamber, the guy they just put in an electric chair, he's God's Savior of the world. It's like, no, he can't be. He's guilty. But the Word of God says it's exactly God's plan. That he took upon the sins of the world as he died upon the cross. And that was God's plan. For he became sin for us. That was his plan. He was made sin on our behalf. And instead of defeat, the death of Christ was the greatest victory for all of humanity, capped by the resurrection itself. It was wonderful. The Bible says that Jesus endured the pain, the cross, despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before Him, that it accomplished the purposes of God, that through His death and resurrection, that all who put their faith and trust in Him will become children of God to those who believe in His name. He began to proclaim that. A sign of one who is genuinely born again is a person who will tell others what has happened in their life. I don't understand the deep theological impacts of many of these things. But all I know is this. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, my life was never the same. And I told people what I knew at that point, and that was just that, hey, I don't understand what's going on in my life. But man, everything's different now. I never read the Bible. 
Never spent any time in it. I didn't understand this. I don't know these verses. Didn't know these passages. All I know is this. When I gave my life to Christ, that, that my life was transformed. I was different. Today I know more about what God did only because I've spent time reading His Word. But at that point, I didn't know anything. It's like the, 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 one I, the guy I told you about. Man, his life was transformed. He was so excited. And all he could say was, I'm happy in hell to be with you people. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. I mean, that's just a sign of a transformed heart. It's like, man, I couldn't stand being with Christians, and now, man, I'm just happy to be with you. Now God is at work in his heart. He who began a good work in him will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ. But man, you know what? There's progress being made. Saved in a moment of time, conformed in the image of Christ over a lifetime. And the last thing is this, and we'll close with this. There is also fearlessness in suffering. Fearlessness in suffering. He said that he would be a chosen instrument and he would show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In verses 23 through 31, give us a great account. The Bible says that the Jews wanted to do away with him. We're told that in verse 29, the Hellenistic Jews were trying to put him to death. That he was lowered over the wall in a basket to escape those who were trying to kill him. All along the way, he suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, history tells us that he went to his death proclaiming Jesus Christ as God's Savior of the world. That he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. A man who denied that Jesus was Christ and a man who denied that he rose from the dead when he was truly born again spent the rest of his life telling anybody that would listen and many people who wouldn't that Jesus Christ is God's plan for mankind. Between verses 22 and 23, it says, And when many days have elapsed, we know in the book of Galatians what had happened in those many days. Those many days were three years. And for three years, Saul spent time alone with Jesus Christ in the Arabian wilderness. Which is amazing when you consider that was in the same area of Sinai that Moses was given the law. Effective service for Jesus Christ always always starts with spending time alone with God. Spending time alone with God. For three years, man, God took him and taught him and showed him the truth of who he was and who he is. He wasn't cast out immediately as a celebrity who had been born again. Our culture is filled with that. I get so many calls from people that because of my association with professional athletes, hey, do you got any guy that can, you got a guy who can come and speak to our men's group? You got a guy who can come, we're going to have an outreach at our church. You got a guy who can come, and you know what, many times I can say, hey, you know what, no, I don't. There isn't one person that I'm working with at this point that I would say go and, and, uh, and share what Christ has done in your life. Because they're just not ready. But we live in a culture of celebrity. All you got to do is pick up the newspaper and see what church has invited what celebrity to come and tell people about Jesus. Many times, that's not even what's there at all. It is this person who comes so that it can be interviewed and attract people to come and listen. But what is it that they have to offer? See, God's agenda is totally different. He says, you need to spend time alone with me. And as you get to know me, and you get to be humbled in my presence, and you get to be broken through the process... You know, many times God takes people out of the game and puts them on the bench so they can humble them and break them. Because I believe this sincerely. God can't use a man or woman greatly until he hurts them deeply. So that you're broken and I'm broken. So that it's no longer pride or me or look what I'm doing. But you know what? This is all about Jesus Christ. 
Many have found the radical transformation of this Pharisee of Pharisees the most convincing evidence of the truth and the power of Christianity as well as the ultimate worth and the place of the person of Jesus Christ. In closing, two professors at Oxford, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, were determined to destroy the basis of the Christian faith. West was going to demonstrate the fallacy of the resurrection and Littleton was going to prove that Saul of Tarsus had never converted to Christianity. Since both men came to the opposite conclusion and became ardent followers of Jesus Christ. Littleton writes, The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. He concludes that if Paul's 25 years of suffering for service was true, then his conversion was true, for everything he did began with that sudden change on that road to Damascus. And if his conversion was true, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, for everything Paul was and did, he attributed to the sight of the risen Savior. One last question. Are you born again? Since it's mandatory in order to be forgiven by God and enter the kingdom of God, is there any more important question that you can ever ask yourself? Is there a time you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Not in religion, not in church, not in church rituals or any of those things, but came to recognize what God says is true, that you're a sinner, that you've offended God, and that you need to turn to Him for forgiveness and trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and rose again from the dead? Is there fervency in your prayer life, continually seeking the will of God in your life, His will, His plan, His direction for you, submissive to His leading, not negotiating with Him to do what you want, but open to Him telling you what He wants of your life? Is there faithfulness and service How are you demonstrating that? Are you controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit? And the way you talk to people? And the way you treat people? And the things that you say during the course of a week and the things that you do? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? Are old things really passed away and all things becoming new? Do you enjoy fellowship with other believers? Or do they make you feel uncomfortable? And your old friends, your current friends, make you feel at home. And you better examine your heart. Are you fluent in your speaking? Telling others what has happened in your heart as you've given your life to Jesus Christ and what He's doing. How can we be ashamed of Him? We brag about everything. We can't tell, wait to tell people about it. I know friends can't wait to tell me about a new golf course that they went to or surfing that they're taking up or some other hobby or some other activity or somebody else that they know or a great deal at Nordstrom's or whatever it is. And yet we don't tell anybody about Jesus who saved us from hell and guarantees us heaven through the precious blood that He shed on the cross. That, that doesn't make much sense, does it? And are we fearless in our suffering, knowing that it's a privilege to suffer for His name's sake? 
that we would be considered worthy to be persecuted because of our faith in Jesus Christ? As the apostles who were beaten ran down the street praising God and excited for the fact that, hey, we got beat because we told people about Jesus. Isn't that great? In our culture, it's like, oh, my boss doesn't like me. Or my coworkers don't invite me to parties. Or I didn't get the promotion. Wah. Let them beat you. Then you can sue them. No, just kidding. <laughs> See, Saul, Saul's religion, he was a religious man, but he was dead in his sins. But when he came into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, he was born again. He was made alive to God and dead to sin. Are you truly born again? Father, there's no more important question for each of us to ask of ourselves. God, may the evidence be overwhelming that we've truly come to faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. God, I just pray for those who are hearing these words who have gotten confused by religion. And it's time for a relationship to develop through faith in Jesus Christ. That they will admit their sin. Lord, I am a sinner. I'm guilty just as Saul was guilty and all are guilty. And I turn from sin and I turn to you. And I ask for your forgiveness. And I thank you and believe what you tell me, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, in my place, and that he rose again three days later from the dead, showing he truly is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God, I pray that He would now be the Lord and Savior of my life. God, for those of us who have come to faith, may there be more evidence of the fact that we truly are born again. For if anyone receives Him, You have given us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in His name, who are not born by the will of man or blood or physical descent, but by the will of God and the regeneration of the Spirit of God. It's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from you so that none of us will ever boast in your sight. We owe it all to you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.